Thank you, Rob. Is the volume on this machine adequate? Thank you all for coming, and it's always a real compliment when people come back again. How many of you have been here before for one of these lectures? Very delightful. I ask that for two reasons. One, to see if anyone ever comes back, and secondly, so I don't tell the same jokes over again. But before I begin this evening, I would like to recognize a person in the audience who, uh, whom I did not expect to see, and it's a great honor to have him. We share the same last name. His life and work has been an inspiration to me. I would like Dr. Alfred Trinkline to please take a bow. Dr. Alfred Trinkline lives in Cleveland, Ohio, but he happens to be visiting relatives in this area, and I'm very delighted to see him. Cleveland. Okay. I want to begin this evening uh, by taking a journey into fantasy land. We all watch Fantasy Island, and we have more or less uh, complimentary views of that show. But let's go back in our imagination, and there's a real purpose for this, so I want you to do it very actively. I mean, really engage the gears here. Imagine that you are among the first group of human beings to be placed upon Earth. Let's assume that God has decided to make a place of residence, a planet here, that you are possessed of all the mental capacities that you now have, which are certainly considerable, but you don't have any of the modern technology that we now possess. And God gives you an assignment. He says, I want you in one year's time, I'll be back in a year, to draw a picture of the universe. You have your eyes, you have your ears, you have your mind, and most important of all, you have your inquisitiveness. All these you're given in abundant measure. You don't have to work for a living otherwise, just sit here and figure out the universe. What would be the first thing you do? Now we're going to take this out of fantasy land because that's exactly what happened, you know. The first human beings capable of thinking had the same universe to look at that we do, you know. What's the first thing to do? Well, the first thing to do is to figure out when a year is over to see how much time you have. And that's exactly, I mean, that's human, isn't it? I mean, let's not start tomorrow if we have a whole year. <laughs> I mean, Rob knows that from class. Let's write the third paper on the last night. But, especially if it's in astronomy, you write it at night. The first assignment, and this is what makes astronomy the most ancient science in the universe, is to figure out what is a year. How much time do you have if you have a year? The reason astronomy was born was to give people a calendar. I say that because a lot of people think astronomy is a completely useless science. It's something you do if you have time and have, want a hobby, you know. And I'll show you some pictures of people later who are really hooked on it. 
It's today considered one of the least applicable hobbies in the world. You can't make any money at it. You just spend a lot of it. You spend a fortune making telescopes and mirrors and things of this kind. You cannot make a living being an astronomer. It's one thing I tell my students. Our daughter found that out. She majored in astronomy, got out of Northwestern University, couldn't find a job. The field of astronomy is a very difficult field to get into. It's a hobby more than anything else. But I'll tell you, the hobbyists are really going places. I don't think I'm talking to any professional astronomers here. I might be wrong. But I'm talking to a lot of potential hobbyists and a lot of people who are looking for something to really sink their teeth into. Well, try this for size. Get into a hobby where you figure out how big the universe is. I mean, that's a hobby where you go as far as you can go. <laughs> In these next two lectures, tonight and tomorrow, we're going to go as far as we can go. How far is that? Let's get back to fantasy land. You're sitting there, and your first assignment, you pretty soon realize, is to figure out how long is a year. You've got a year. How would you go about that? And unless you figure out how long a year is, you won't survive because you have to plant crops, and you have to harvest the crops, and you have to plant them and harvest them during a time when they'll grow. That is why astronomy was born. Astronomy is the oldest science of all, because it gave us the calendar. And without a calendar, there's not much you can do, at least not if you're going to survive and grow food. Now, let's get down to the topic that is a little wider than that. After you have a calendar, one civilization in Mexico made a Mayan calendar, another one made a lunar calendar, another civilization made a solar calendar, another one made a lunisolar calendar. We haven't really agreed yet which one is the best calendar. One thing is for sure, the one we have is one of the worst. Because if you come up with a calendar, why should you start January 1st and a different day of the year, a different day of the week every year? That's nonsense. With all our technology, why can't we get a calendar that's the same every year? Not even the people who propose that we go into the metric system are touching the calendar. Nobody is proposing that we change the calendar because so many people have vested interests in the calendar. There should be seven days in a week. There should be this. There should be this many holidays. There should be a long weekend of Washington's birthday. All this has to be in there. A calendar is the oldest and most messed up scientific device of all. A few years ago, the United Nations came up with a new calendar. It was called the World Calendar. It always started January 1st on Sunday. And you know why it did not succeed? The calendar manufacturing lobby said, what are we going to sell? Once you got a calendar, you have one. And so the world calendar is only of historic interest. <laughs> we can't even change the calendar. Well, let's get beyond the calendar. So we have one. At least we know more or less when a year is over. Not really, though, because we have leap years, you know. We haven't really got it down. But roughly, spring begins on March 21st. Okay, some wise individual in our group of fantasy line figured it out, how to make a calendar, and you know how to do that. You watch when it gets warm, you watch when it gets cold, and you say, now that's one cycle, and let's call that a year. 
But now let's look a little more. What is that up there? First, we wait for clear weather, of course. I mean, supposing it never got clear. Thank God we're on a planet that is not always cloudy. On Long Island, about 50% of the time, but not always. On Venus, think you were placed on Venus. You couldn't see anything in the sky. If there are Venusians up there, they wouldn't think there is anything else but Venus. They can't see past the clouds. Or could they? Could they receive some other information? Well, anyway, it's clear. It's dark at night. Did you ever notice what a blessing that is? We're going to get back to that question, by the way. One of the most profound scientific astronomical problems of all time is, why is it dark at night? That has not been fully answered. If the universe is infinite, if there are stars everywhere, if you're in the middle of a forest and you look around, and if it's a really big forest, you'll see trees wherever you look. Now, if there are stars everywhere, you should see stars wherever you look. It should be bright all over. That problem has not yet been fully answered, and I'm not going to answer it until tomorrow night, in fact. I mean, you've got to leave them hanging. That's known as Olber's paradox. But it is dark at night. Everybody agrees it's dark at night, so that we can see some stars. Now, what are they? And how far away are they? Are they all the same distance? This is one of the oldest questions that mankind has addressed. And for a few minutes now, I want to show you some of the answers we've come up with. The first answer to what, that's what it would look like if it were not dark at night. <laughs> the first answer is known as the Ptolemaic theory. And the first interesting thing about the Ptolemaic theory is that Ptolemy did not make it up. This very often happens, that the people who make up the theory don't get the credit for it. I just read a very disturbing thing recently, that the fellow who got the Nobel Prize for measuring the charge on the electron didn't really do the work. <laughs> and the man who really did the work just died, and posthumously, he said he doesn't want this released before he dies, he revealed that he did the work, but he didn't want to take the credit from his colleague. So Ptolemy had virtually nothing to do with the Ptolemaic theory except to write it down. Now, what is the Ptolemaic theory? Over here, in front of the picture of the Ptolemaic theory, is a globe. It's not a globe of the Earth. It's a globe of the sky. It's called a celestial sphere. And the reason it's called that is because every sensible human being who goes outside at night and looks up into the sky gets the impression that it looks like a dome. Now, if you ask five different people whether it looks like a dome that is round or whether it looks like a dome that's a little flattened out, you might get a little argument about that. In other words, if you look straight up at a star, does that look like as far away as if you look at something on the horizon? Most people will say that the sky looks like an inverted bowl, and everything seems to be shining or fastened to that one dome. And that's why the first picture of the sky was exactly that, a dome. 
And Ptolemy, writing down what other people had discovered about this dome, said that the Earth is in the middle of the universe. There are a lot of people who are convinced that the sun rises and sets on them, so this is not hard to put across to most people. We are the center of everything. Look at the Earth. It doesn't seem to be moving. It looks very stationary. The Earth looks very big. We're in the center. So the first picture drawn by people of what the universe looks like put the Earth in the center. And around the outside, there were various circles. Now, why are there so many circles? I thought everything looked like it was on one dome. Well, you mustn't confuse these circles with distances. This has nothing to do with how far away the moon is, or Mercury, or Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which was the last planet they knew about, which everyone can see without a telescope. But rather, the different circles are drawn to show the different movements of these planets. They were all considered to be at the same distance. Everything was at the same distance. The only thing missing here is that around the outside of these planets, there was another circle on which the stars were located. So we should really put another one around here. That isn't very circular, but let's put all the stars out there. And the people at Ptolemy's time, and we're talking now about the year 150 AD, he wrote a book in which is a current called the Almagest. And the Almagest is a word meaning all knowledge. Now, the people who wrote books at that time had a little more self-confidence than all the two today. The Almagest meant the book. That's it. Around the outside were all the stars. Or I shouldn't say around the outside, but on this last circle in the sky. All these had the same radius, but on this one circle of the sky were all the stars. The stars were all considered to be equidistant, and they were fixed. They didn't move. Well, if you look at the sky night after night, it doesn't look like the stars move very much. The Big Dipper always looks like the Big Dipper. North Star is always in the same place. You never saw one fall. Dipper is always there. So the fixed stars are fixed. But these other things here didn't stay fixed. If you look at Mars tonight and look at it again tomorrow night, it's not in the same place. So the people called those things wanderers. W-A-N, wanderers. And the word for wanderers is planet. The word planet means a wandering object. And these were the things that wandered around. The moon is not in the same position tonight. It was the night before. Then Mercury, Venus, the sun isn't in the same position. It moves slightly from day to day. That's why we have a year. And Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn all move around at various speeds among the stars. The moon moves the fastest. It goes all the way around the sky in one month. Mercury takes 88 days. Venus takes a little longer. The sun takes one year. Mars takes longer yet. Jupiter yet. Saturn about 13 years. These are the wanderers. And they thought they had a pretty good system going. They called each one of these circles going around among the stars deference. But now what's about these little circles here? Well, after the people at Ptolemy's time watched these wanderers moving around among the stars, pretty soon some of them did not take the path they were supposed to take. They digressed from the predicted motion. Now, this is a very important thing in science. When you have a theory, first of all, you make the theory up in order to explain what you're looking at. 
not vice versa. You don't make up a theory and go out and tell nature to obey it. You watch nature, put down the facts, make up a theory, and predict what will happen next. If nature follows your prediction, you have a good theory. If it doesn't, you throw it overboard. Well, the Greeks at Ptolemy's time were so fond of circles. They even worshipped the circles every so often. They had little circle clubs and all that. That they did not want to give up this shape for the motion of a planet. So when a planet digressed from its predicted position in the sky, when Mars did not go the next night where they thought it should go according to these circles, they just used more circles to explain it. <laughs> so they put a little circle on top of the big one. And they said, ah, the planet goes on the little circle, and then the little circle goes on a big circle, and now it makes little loops in the sky like it shows over here, which Mars does. And it goes one way for a while, it backs up a little bit, and it goes forward again. Well, the circles explained that. And the little circles were called epicycles. Well, pretty soon there were so many epicycles in this drawing that one time when the king of Spain took an astronomy course, he told his professor, if God had asked him how to make the universe, he could have thought of a much simpler plan. Well, the, difference, the difficulty was not with the plan, you see. The difficulty was with this drawing. Now, this particular drawing of the universe, and I want to remind you that this was the entire universe. This was all there was. Nothing else could be seen in the sky. So why should we bother drawing any other pictures? This model of the universe was, in effect, for over a thousand years. This is the longest standing theory of science in all of the history of mankind. No other theory has ever persisted for that many years. Now, if you want to say a theory is true or not because of how long it lasts, stick with this one. There are some people who still believe it, by the way. Well, then in about the 15th century, a man came along who said, I don't think that's how it is. And the reason he said he doesn't think that's how it is is because it shouldn't take all those circles to explain it. When a scientist is given a choice of two theories, both of which kind of fit the fact, the simpler one is probably correct. This is a hunch we have in science. This cannot be proved, really, in the mathematical sense. But we have a hunch that the simplest explanation of anything is always correct. Now, along comes another idea. This time, and the fellow's name was Copernicus, He put the sun in the middle, and he put the circles with the other planets around the sun, and the Earth was the third one. Mercury, Venus, Earth with the moon, and then Mars, and then Jupiter, not the most perfect circles, but they'll do, and then Saturn. Saturn with the ring. And around the outside. By the way, when Galileo first saw Saturn, he said it had ears. <laughs> he couldn't see the ring. Well, I'll show you the telescope later. It wasn't so hot. Then the stars again. Now, what was the big deal about this system? The big difference was that the Earth was no longer in the center of the universe. 
Never mind whether it explained the facts or not. People did not want to see the Earth removed from the center of the universe. Naturally, since we're the most important thing in the universe, we should be in the center. Copernicus was so afraid that his new theory would be condemned and that he would be put in prison that his theory is not published until after his death. And the reason for the objections were not only emotional, but religious. You see, the church of the time of Copernicus, and he was a churchman, the church had decided, and this was a basic error that people should avoid, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, you should not confuse science and religion. Both of them establish truths in their own fields. But you must not confuse the two. If you can observe the universe and explain how it works, you do not need faith. Religious faith is not for the purpose of establishing scientific theories and vice versa. That doesn't mean they conflict with each other. It means they have different spheres of knowledge. And the church of the time of Copernicus didn't get that straight. In fact, they condemned the Copernican theory and said that anybody who believes it would be tortured. And Galileo was one of those. And Galileo repented after he saw the torture instruments in the basement that this is what he believed. And he took it back. So would you write. But the mistake was a regrettable one because it held back science and religion for a long, long time. They suspected each other, and there was no progress in either sphere for a long time. You see, it's pretty hard to say that something is wrong and make people conform with your opinion and then later change your mind and say, now it's permissible to think it. The same people who condemned Copernicus and Galileo 200 years later said, now you can believe it. But Copernicus had broken the barrier between believing something absolutely just because somebody says so and being allowed and daring to say something because it appeared to be correct by looking at nature. Now, I should, ha I should immediately add to that and say that the Copernican theory of the universe is no more correct than the Ptolemaic one. The Copernican system did not explain the movements of the planets any better than the Ptolemaic system did. And it didn't take very long before the people who used this theory put on little circles all <laughs> over the place, just like before. Just as many. A lot of textbooks make this all wrong. They say the Copernican system explained the movements of the planets. Well, if that were the case, the next hour lecture wouldn't be any good because I'm now about to tell you what was wrong with the Copernican system and who corrected it. The Copernican system was not correct. The Copernican system only dared to differ with the people who said that the Earth is in the middle and not the sun. Right away, let me erase this and let Copernicus rest in peace and he doesn't have to be afraid of the Inquisition anymore because he was wrong anyway. <laughs> Now, what was wrong with Copernicus? He got the Earth out of the middle. He still got the stars, 
all in one place out at the end, you see. And by the way, there was one person who took the Copernican map that I've just showed you and scattered the stars. Instead of leaving them all on one sphere of the stars way out at the end, and I want to put his name down because he should get a lot of credit for this. And this thing isn't writing so well, so we'll put it in a different color. His name was Diggs. Now, you've never learned in school about the Diggs theory, but we really should. Because Diggs was the first one who said the stars are not all at the same distance. Some of them are far away, some are close by. People said, how do you know? He said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, if there's one thing, <laughs> there are some people who think that's very funny, but if there's one thing you want, should remember after you leave here tonight, is if anyone asks you a question about astronomy, the most intelligent answer you can give is you don't know. You know we don't know, because we really don't. But it'll take me several hours to explain why we don't know. No. If the circles of the Greeks were no good, then the circles of Copernicus were no good either. And the person who straightened out what was wrong, we'll put it in a different color here. I'm using primary colors, you know. That's a little physics. Somebody called before and said, I'm going to use any physics lecture. And the answer is absolutely, because already now I'm putting the three primary colors of physics up there. Now some people say, where's yellow? Well, I'm sorry, but yellow is not a primary color. These are the three primaries, blue, green, and red. But anyway, well, I'll show you more of that a little bit later. The man I want to talk about now is Kepler. In my view, which is not very widely accepted in astronomical circles, I must add, Kepler is the most important astronomer who ever lived. Absolutely, without Kepler, we would not be in space, technology where we are today. As a matter of fact, when we went to the moon one time, and one of the Apollo spaceships was nearing the moon, Houston called up to the captain of the ship and said, who's flying the ship? And the ca captain said, Kepler. So these guys in Houston quick looked in the book to see how he got up there. <laughs> well, they should have listened to their astronomy professor. Now, Kepler, and it really is an injustice to, in 15 seconds, put up here what it took the man 20 years to figure out. Well, how would you like that? You, 20 years of effort on your part and somebody click on a scratch pad and then tears it off or wipes it off with a rag and says, well, there's Kepler. <laughs> Kepler said, why is the circle so holy? What's such a big deal about the circle? Why don't we make some other shape up there? And his first law was, planets do not move in circles. Somebody would say, well, how do they stay up there? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's just as hard to explain how they stay up there in circles in an air shape. I can't do it. So why does the circle have to be more permanent and everlasting than any other shape? Now, Kepler did not invent this shape here. Actually, this one I just defended, but I mean this general one here is called an ellipse. And Kepler said all planets move in orbits that are shaped like an ellipse. So we'll put a planet here. You know, we always make planets and things go counterclockwise. Why is that? 
we seem to be prejudiced counterclockwise. Have you ever noticed that? I first found that out in Australia when I was down there for an expedition that people said we're sick and tired of these counterclockwise textbooks. Not only that, but all the textbooks have Australia on the bottom. Do you know an Australian textbook, Australia's on top? Why should they put themselves on the bottom? Why should South be down? Why should left-handed always be so much worse? If a person is correct, he's always right. He's never left. See, there's a prejudice against left-handedness, and there's a prejudice against clockwise order. All textbooks are clock, counterclockwise. So at least change the clock or something to make it go the same way. <laughs> Say we have the Earth going this way. Where is the sun? Kepler said, not in the middle, off to the side. Sun, over here. Why? Why did you put it in the middle? Kepler said, I can explain the movement of the planet by putting the sun off to one side and making the planet go around in this shape. It's not an egg shape, by the way. That's an oval. This is an ellipse. Now, the Greeks had already studied the ellipse and the very mathematical thing about the two-fold sign, the length of distance, and all this mathematical people here would understand. But, doesn't it look like there's something missing over here? People said to cover what's over there. <laughs> He said, why does there have to be anything over there? <laughs> now, mind you, Kepler did not know why this happened. As a matter of fact, if you've been here before, I can tell you right now that the world's leading scientists that I spoke to say never, never try to answer any question that begins with why. We don't know why. God only knows is the best answer. And if, my, if I ever have a quiz in class and have a why, the kids are always writing down God only knows, and I have to mark it correct. <laughs> That's true. We don't know why. We just know that. We have all we can do to handle the question that. Never mind why. Nobody knows why the universe is there in the first place. But the sun is at one of these places, Kepler said, because I can draw this loop around here and I don't need any of your epicycles. So with one sentence, Kepler in the 17th century, without benefit of a lot of telescopes, got rid of the epicycles, all those dozens of little circles that were added in there to explain the motion of the planet. Well, he did much more. He also found out that a planet, and this was known before, but he, he gave some explanation of it, that a planet does not move the same speed all year long. Let's say that's the Earth around there. Let's say it goes from here to here in one month. Well, it's a strange thing when the Earth gets over here, in one month it'll go this far. And then when it gets way out there, it only goes this far. Why, huh? <laughs> Never mind why. But suppose... Kepler said, we draw a line from the sun to the earth or any other planet when it's one month apart and kind of shades it in here. And then we draw a line over there and over here and we shade that in there. What do you see? Same area. This is true of every orbit. Whether you swing your keys around on a string or whether the moon goes around the earth or the earth around the sun or a galaxy around a super galaxy, it's always true. 
That's known as the law of equal areas. You know, if in just your lifetime you never discovered anything besides that, you'd probably be down the book somewhere. Kepler's second law. You think that's strange? The next one took him 15 years to figure out. Let's suppose we call the distance from the sun out to here, average distance during the whole year, d. And let's suppose we call the time it takes around here, which is one year for the Earth, but for other planets it's different, let's call that d. This is for period, this is for distance. Now I should mention before I put this equation down that Kepler did not make the observations himself on which this next theory is based. And this is another good thing to remember in science. Unless you work together with people in other countries, and even people with whom you don't get along, science is going to be retarded in its march. And that's why I want to write down another fellow's name. Tycho Brahe was an eccentric. In fact, he got in a fight and somebody cut his nose off. And for the rest of his life, he wore a silver one. And people could always see him coming because the sun reflected from his silver nose. <laughs> Tycho Brahe was, and he didn't have a telescope. This is before telescopes. Brahe just made a very accurate book of positions of Mars and the other planets in the sky that didn't know what it meant. And one day he met Kepler. And Kepler got a hold of his books and looked at those numbers for years and years and finally came up with the equation that if you take the distance and square it and take the period and cube it, you get the same number. So let, should I go through this with the Earth, for example? Let's call the distance from the Sun to the Earth one distance. One. One astronomical unit. In fact, that's what it's called. Never mind how many miles it is. And let's call, is it this one squared? And let's call the time that it takes to go around here one year. Well, naturally, one squared is equal to one cubed, isn't it? That's not so complicated. But now use the same yardstick for all the other planets. Now let's say Mars is 1.2 astronomical unit and takes 1.3 years or something. If you square this one and cube this one, you'll get the same number again. If you use the same ratio of Earth distances and Earth years for all the planets, it'll come out the same. That is what flew Apollo to the moon when he said Kepler is flying the ship. Kepler did not know why that was so. He had the unusual ability to look at the numbers of Brahe and figure out that that's true. After that, planetary science was on its way. And we could predict the motion of any planet or the distance of any planet as long as we knew how long it took to go once around the Earth. When Pluto was discovered, I just had the chance a few weeks ago to listen to an address in Peoria, Illinois, by Clyde Tombo, who discovered the planet Pluto. He's 76 years old. He said for the last 50 years he's been a plutocrat. <laughs> That's the only joke he had all night. But he said <laughs> he's a plutocrat because 
when he discovered that planet after 7,000 hours at the telescope, he needed only one day to tell how long and how far because of his equation of Kepler. Well, I'm not going to go into any other uh, equations in that depth because, as I said before, it's the most important one of all, and it's time to look at a few more interesting pictures than just these little circles, but I want to tell you that even though Kepler in the 17th century made this breakthrough, we still didn't know how far away anything was. We knew the ratios. We still didn't know how far exactly away is Mars, only in relation to the Earth. No one knew exactly how far away the sun was. How do you measure something like that? Nobody had any idea how far away a star is, or if they're different distances from us, or still all at the same distance. That was still far in the future. So what does our picture of the universe look like now with Newton? Well, it still has a bunch of stars and planets out there, except that now the planets move in elliptic orbits. Now, mind you, we've gone 1,600 years past Ptolemy, and we haven't figured out yet how far away is the sun and moon. Well, the person after that who came up with some more answers, as we all know, was Isaac Newton. Now, Newton was an astronomer as well as a physicist. And in fact, Newton was a good friend of Edmund Halley after whom Halley's Comet is named. And one day Halley came to him and said, Isaac Newton, I have a problem in trying to predict the orbits of, planet, of, of comets that you can help me with. And it was only after Halley encouraged Newton to go back to work and figure out some of the mathematics that Newton came up with his laws of motion and gravitation. So he took the, uh, the catalyst of Halley, his astronomer friend, to get him started on his mathematical breakthroughs. And it was Newton who figured out that the reason for Kepler's orbit of equal areas was a thing called gravity, that the sun and the planets are pulling on each other. Now, why did Newton think it was gravity? There's why again, you know. I don't know why he thought of that, but I do know this. He made the word up. No one before Newton knew anything about gravity because Newton invented the word. Today, we're not so sure there is any. But for hundreds of years after Newton, people would answer all their questions in class correctly by saying, the law of gravity explains it. Well, the law of gravity doesn't really explain it. The law of gravity is just a statement that says there is something pulling between these two objects. And for a long time, it seemed to be correct. And I'm going to do some jumps into history now and come up to the present time because we have to get started on answering the question what the universe is made of. Well, Newton was not right either. And the person who figured out that Newton was wrong was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said, there are some things that are happening up there that do not obey Newton's laws especially when they're moving very rapidly. And as you know, his famous equation is E equals mc squared. But that really is not the one that relates to Newton. The theory of relativity is not E equals mc squared. The theory of relativity, part of it is 
that the speed of light, and that's what C means, C is the speed of light, that the speed of light is the limit of motion, that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And if things go very nearly the speed of light, Einstein said, some very strange effects are produced that for all the purposes of science can explain Newton's gravity without using his equation. Well, we don't know for sure whether Einstein is right either. But what we do know, and this is where we want to switch machines, Margaret, if you'll please turn on the slide projector. We do know more about how far away things are. Now, I promised you before that I would show you Galileo's first telescope. Another wrong thing in some books is that Galileo invented the telescope. That's not true. Galileo heard that somebody else had invented the telescope and got jealous. And he said, I want to invent the telescope. <laughs> well, Galileo was a very good politician. He made this telescope and convinced the people in his country that he invented the telescope. And they paid him a pension for it. <laughs> Only later did they find out that a fellow in Holland had invented the telescope. But naturally, Galileo's telescope was better. Now, this is true. Henry Ford did not invent the car either, you know. Henry Ford made a better car, unless you believe in Chevrolets. And, but anyway, <laughs> it was a fellow in France who invented the car. And Ford said, I can make it better. Galileo saw a telescope one day that a fellow had invented in Holland, and he said, I'm going to make a better one. These two, uh, two telescopes of his are very primitive. You can buy something like this in the store for a few dollars and probably get a much better image than he ever got. The maximum power he had was about 30 magnifications. That's not very good, because what he really invented was opera glasses. <laughs> This end of the telescope is a concave lens, and that's a convex lens. He should not have monkeyed around with the one that the fellow invented in Holland, because it was really a better telescope. But this one was easier to use, and it had another advantage, and that is that the Galilean telescope, which hardly anybody uses today to look at anything in the sky, it keeps things right side up. The original telescope did not. And Galileo sold this instrument to the military people of his time for watching ships come to the harbor and identify them as enemies before anybody else could. So the Galilean telescope is good for watching play in New York because it keeps the actors right side up. If you'd use a different one, it'd be upside down. You can put another lens in and make it right side up again, but that costs more money. Now, here are some sketches that Galileo made. He was the first human being, mind you, to see that the moon had craters. He was the first one, as I said before, who saw that Saturn has a ring. He was the first one ever to see that, uh, that Jupiter had uh, what he thought were satellites around it. He even named them. He was the first person ever to see that Venus had phases. He was the first person to see sunspots. And in fact, that may even have blinded him later in his life. He looked at the sun too much with his instrument. But with this telescope, he was able to show that the Ptolemaic theory of the universe was wrong, that the Earth could not be in the middle of it, because otherwise 
Venus would not have the phases that it does when you look at it through a telescope. But even though he knew that, and even though the people who criticized him looked through the telescope and saw it, they made him repent and say it's not true. And he was under house arrest for the rest of his life. <laughs> right, that's true. Maybe that was partly a punishment for a little of his dishonesty. I know Galileo was a, a real... Uh, he didn't mind laughing at people when he knew he was right and they were wrong. Now, there are other people like that, but if you're a great scientist, you should be way above that stuff. This is the largest refracting telescope in the world. What I mean by that, it's the largest one that has a lens at both ends. A lens here and a lens over here. It's about 90 feet between there because this is a focal length of 90 feet. You see by this uh, fellow here that it's really a very gigantic instrument. This is in Williams Bay, Wisconsin. It was put up for the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition in 1892. And a larger one has never been built. And the reason is that it's too difficult to make a piece of glass any bigger than this and hold it by the edges without it falling out. This is 40 inches across and weighs about a ton. Now, as you're down here looking through this eyepiece and realize there's a one-ton piece of glass up there, <laughs> it makes you a little nervous. Now, another thing is, when you swing this instrument up here to look at stars on the horizon, how do you get up here? You either have to put a ladder up here and uh, this thing keeps moving, you know, how do you stay there? Well, the answer is the whole floor moves up here. The whole floor of the building comes up to whatever height you need. And it's sometimes very disconcerting when you walk through a door here to get onto the floor, then an hour later you try to get out and the door's gone. <laughs> because the floor has now moved above the door. So you're stuck up there until the door comes back. So <laughs> also it's very important to open the dome at night. Some people have made great discoveries on the inside of the dome. <laughs> World's largest refracting telescope. Not only open the dome, which only opens one slit here, but rotate it so that it's always pointing out to the slit. This is so carefully balanced, this dome runs on rubber tires here, and the whole thing uh, turns with uh, one or two horsepower motors. From that, we go to the largest reflecting optical telescope. Now, I'm using those words very carefully, which means the largest telescope that uses a mirror instead of a lens. Now, this telescope was invented by Isaac Newton. Not this large one, but the idea to use a mirror. So Galileo, who could have done the same thing and really come up with a new one, failed to see that you can collect the light from the stars and from space with a mirror just as well as with a lens. In fact, it's cheaper. And the telescope you see mounted that we'll talk about a little bit later standing by the floor there is a reflecting telescope of this type. And you can make this mirror as large as you wish. This is the mirror down here. This only holds it here. This is the yoke that holds the telescope. This is the instrument. It's 90 feet from the mirror down here, which is 200 inches across, to the observing cage up here. The man who looks into this thing goes out of this catwalk here and into this cage. And then the telescope is swung over, and he's in there. And he better have taken care of every little need of his beforehand because he may be in there for eight hours. And it gets very cold up there, too. Now you say, if he's in there, doesn't that keep the light from coming in here? Well, the answer is, if you put another mirror up there, 
so that the image comes off to the side, that other mirror will absorb just as much light as the stage will. So it's better to let the light come through here, bounce from the mirror down here, and go up into this cage where the man is sitting to take pictures. There is a larger one than this in Russia right now, but it isn't working. The Russians have had a 240-inch telescope mounted for about 10 years, but no pictures have yet been produced because it's not figured properly. It's not operative. We tried to see it in, when we were in Siberia last summer, but they wouldn't let us go to look at it because the Russians don't like you to look at failures. This is one of the highest up observatories in the world. I'm jumping over all kinds of other instruments here, but this is in France, in the Pyrenees Mountains, and can you imagine going up there to work every day? Well, there are dormitories here, so you can live there for a time. It's also so high that you need oxygen masks to work there. Now, why have it up there? The answer is that you're above so much of the Earth's disturbing atmosphere that you can see things much clearer than you can even at Mount Palomar in California. Well, those are some of the largest commercial telescopes. About a week ago, I had the opportunity to go to Springfield, Vermont, where the amateur telescope makers of the country gather every year and compete for making the best telescopes of the year. This is known as cellophane. And the first thing I saw was this home of a wealthy uh, president of a corporation in Vermont, in Springfield, who had a friend who made telescopes. Well, the telescope is over here. This thing that looks a little bit like the mother or the woman who lived in a shul here. And he had a tunnel under here to get into that building. I went down the basement here through a tunnel and came up underneath this thing over here. Well, what is that? Let's take a look at it. It's a telescope. Where in the world is the lens and the mirror and everything else? Well, this thing that looks like a skull pipe is the telescope. The sun shines in up here, or whatever object you're looking at. This whole thing is a turret, like out of a bomber, and it's slanted for the latitude where this occurs, which is in Vermont, about 44 or 45 degrees north latitude, and then it hits another mirror internally, and it's a little dark to see this here, but the person that stays inside this turret while the telescope is outside. The man who invented this machine, Mr. Russell Porter, was an amateur. He was a farmer in Vermont who loved to make telescopes, and he was so good at making this that he was hired to design and oversee the construction of the Mount Palomar Telescope in California later. And his larger turret telescope was built on top of this hill in Springfield, Vermont, where the people now gather by the thousands in August every year to compete in making amateur telescopes. So this is the scene that created me last week. And in order to stay overnight here somewhere, you either live in a tent here or you find yourself a motel nearby, which isn't so nearby. Well, here are some of the instruments that people have brought in that they had made themselves. Some of these were on trailers, you'll see in a little while. Here's another turret telescope. You see a picture of this one later. Russell Porter built this in 1930. The lens is out here. The turret is here. He stayed inside where the wind didn't get at him so well. And it's a new invention. There was a little clubhouse he built over here. And for two days, we watched people competing. The interesting thing to me was 
that up and down the side, Russell Porter and his friends had engraved the saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. Which is from the Psalm in the Old Testament. This is the trademark of Stelfane. The amateur here, obviously a businessman, he's not a professional astronomer here, with his homemade telescope. And here, uh, a large wooden yoke. Close up of the Porter turret telescope. Not quite bright enough to see the end of this construction here, but the, the lens is out here, a second mirror here, bounces it inside this building, and you stand in there with your charts and observe the sky. It wasn't very clear right there, but it cleared up a little bit later, a week ago Saturday. Now, not all of the telescopes are very fancy. Here some, this one didn't win a thing because the design <laughs> is not very terrific, but the idea is there. These people are, this was a prize winner from Canada. Notice the similarity between this thing and what we have up here. This is not a celestial sphere, this is called an armillary. It is made out of beautiful polished brass. And with this instrument, the fellow was explaining it to me here, he could duplicate the Ptolemaic and Copernican system of the universe. Here he's got the Earth in the center and the planets going around it. But by tilting it, he could bring the sun up in the center and have the Copernican system there as well. This was a prize-winning exhibit. Now we're getting a little bigger. Notice how simple the mounting of this telescope is. And this is all the rage today in amateur astronomy. Instead of fancy counterweights and gears and all this, you use Teflon. Here's a wheel coated with Teflon, and there's Teflon down below there. And as you know, the two on each other have a very low coefficient of friction. and it supports the telescope very well, and you can move this telescope in any direction very easily because this is the up and down Teflon mount here, and there's another horizontal one down here where the whole thing uh, sits on this table and it slides on Teflon. That is known as a Thopsonian mount. A man by the name of Mr. Thopson came up with that. In order to look through this, the mirror is down here, you see. It bounces it up here. This is the Newtonian type. You have to climb up this ladder here and peek in here. Now, during the night, and these people were up there all through Saturday night, and you couldn't use a bright light or headlights of a car or anything else. And even with a flashlight, you had to paint red lipstick over the front so you wouldn't disturb other people. We were stumbling around with these rocks here and then up this ladder in the dark and then peeking in this eyepiece here. And the way they competed for which one was the best quality telescope was to pick one object in the sky a star that had a, a very close-by companion and see whose telescope separated it the best. We'll run through these a little more quickly. Here's another one who had followed up the theme uh, that Russell Porter had on his building. Uh, a very devoutly religious individual who told me about how uh, his religious faith and his study of the stars uh, harmonized very well. He's right in front here of the turret quarter telescope, as you can see. Now we're getting fancy. Notice his own uh, trailer here, built to take the telescope behind his car. And on top of this one, which is about 20 inches across here, I asked him how long it took him to make the mirror. He made this whole thing, not just the mounting, but the mirror in back here, which has to be polished in a parabolic shape. And he said it took him three years three years to polish the mirror, and on top of it are two finder telescopes. 
This one here would be a pretty nice one already all by itself. You start with this one here, we get it aimed generally in the right direction. Oh, and I take that back. This up here is a light. It's a big flashlight, and when he shines it up in the sky, the dust in the sky shows him how he's aiming the telescope. It makes a little streak up in the sky, something like this streak of light here from the projector. So this is not a telescope. That's a flashlight, and this is a finder telescope here. This won the first prize, I think, for craftsmanship. Again, uh, and, and to make this more stable, this is tubing, and I think I remember him explaining that he took wooden dowels and forced them into the tube for rigidity. I got this in here uh, a little bit to show that inflation has not taken up uh, all of our world. I could, the closest I could get to that place to stay overnight was the next state. I had to cross the river into New Hampshire, and the toll of this bridge was 20 cents, but if you walk across it, you do it for two cents. <laughs> and there were people jogging across there for two cents in each direction. Okay, if I uh, could have the lights again, please. We'll uh, well, uh, leave it there, Rob, because we're running a little short. I want to leave plenty of time for questions, just a few minutes. And quickly tell you that the telescope is by no means the only important instrument in astronomy. So far, we still have not found out how do we know whether the sun is a million miles away, a hundred million, and how far away are the other objects in space, and even more than that, what are they made of? The title of the lecture is The Makeup of the Universe, not only the extent of it. Well, the most important instrument beside the telescope for telling what something is made of in the sky is the spectroscope. And to show what a spectroscope is, I'm, uh, the picture here shows a triangle of glass, the prism, and again, the person who discovered this was Isaac Newton. The man was absolutely a genius in a number of fields in optics, in the telescope, in gravity, in all kinds of things. And one day he held a piece of glass in the sunlight and out came the colors. And then he took another piece of glass here and combined it back into white light to show that actually white is a combination of colors. And when you see a rainbow, it's a, a continuous band of color. But there are some substances, instead of giving a continuous band, they give a discontinuous color. For example, if you would hold this piece of glass in front of a neon sign, you wouldn't get this continuous spectrum at all. You would get this kind of thing. Because the light given off by a neon sign does not contain all the colors. It contains some red, contains some of this, some of this, some of this. This isn't in, in fact, it's pretty close to neon. Maybe a little more red in here. That's correct. That's correct. And that's why if you buy a suit or whatever clothing you buy, always try the clothing on in the same kind of light in which you're going to wear it. If you try clothing on under a fluorescent light, it might not match when you get it out in the sunlight because fluorescent does not contain all the colors, or not the same colors that sunlight does. But if you're going to spend most of your time under a fluorescent light in some interior bistro or something, you might as well try it on under that. So try the clothing on under the light in which you're going to wear it. Now the third kind of light here is a very unusual one, and that's what we see when we look at a star with a device like this we see a continuous band of color with some missing ones. Now that's not so easy to explain, but let me go on and show you what it means. Here a person took a spectroscope, and that's what you call an instrument with a triangle of glass in it, 
and put it in front of a camera. And when he took a picture of this bridge in New York, on the same picture of the bridge, he got these other bridges here. Now, do you recognize that this is the same thing as we saw before, only in each case, instead of a line of color, we see the whole bridge in the different colors. So what does this tell us? These colors here, these colored bridges, the red and the yellow and the blue and purple, tell us what the lights are made of on this bridge, because they're the lights we're photographing. So we can actually tell what the lights are here without getting near them. Now, do you get the idea with the stars? If we take a picture of a star with a spectroscope over the lens and see these different images of the stars, we can tell what the stars are made of. That's called spectrum analysis. Now, if we do that with a whole bunch of different kinds of stars, just take a picture of the stars with a telescope in all directions and classify these pictures in color, we'll find that some stars look like this, have these lines missing. Other stars have other lines missing, and so on. Astronomers have organized these into the following sequence, O, B, A, F, G, K, M. You say, why in the world didn't they say A, B, C, D, E? Well, they did in the beginning. And then they found out it was all wrong, as often happens in astronomy and other sciences. And instead of labeling them all over again, they just rearranged the letters. But the man who made up the new system said it's very easy to remember these letters in a row here. Just say to yourself a sentence, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Now this, you see, goes over with college astronomy students right away, and they never make a mistake. Now there are three more classes here, R and S, which some astronomy student has now amplified to mean right now, sweetie. So what do these classes mean, O-B-A-F-G-K-N? It has been determined by taking pictures like this in the laboratory that the stars in this sequence go from hot to cool. Now when I say hot, I mean this star here that gives this picture is about 50,000 degrees, and this one down here is about 5,000. That's kind of cool here and kind of hot here. If you arrange them by color, the way they look without the spectroscope, the hot ones are blue, the medium ones are yellow, and the cool ones are red. So we go from hot stars, blue, down to here, not only in temperature, the hot ones and cool ones, but along this line in brightness. Naturally, the hotter something is, the brighter it is. And therefore, the cool ones are dimmer. Now, what do we have up here? <laughs> and even some up here that didn't quite get on the picture. Well, what kind of a star do you suppose it is that is very bright and very cool? It must be, now, let's assume they're all the same distance. Let's assume they're all the same distance. What does that tell you about this star? It's bigger, is correct. This is a big star. This is a really big star. <laughs> Mind you, a telescope cannot tell you how big a star is. There isn't a telescope on Earth that can magnify a star. It's too far away. But this diagram tells us that a bright red star is a giant star. You follow? A red giant is a red giant, not because we can see it as a red giant, but because it's red and bright. 
And by simple mathematics, we can tell that this star is about 300 times the diameter of the sun. Where does the sun fit in this picture? Right about here. We're kind of a medium-hot, middle-aged, pooping-out star. <laughs> well, one other thing before we start with the questions, and I told you I'm going to leave you hanging up in the air because we have not yet... I just want you to get familiar with the tools of the trade tonight, so when I tell you what we think is up there, it doesn't sound like we just pulled it out of thin air. These are the instruments that made the observations. The telescope, the spectroscope, and this kind of telescope. This is a radio telescope. This thing is 300 feet across. This is as wide as a football field, and it's movable. You can swivel this thing just like a telescope of another kind in all directions. This is in West Germany, and it's the largest movable radio telescope on Earth. Now, I'll show you in just a minute what a radio telescope is. Why do we need this thing? Because stars, we found, are giving off noises, not just light. That was discovered by accident by an engineer at Bell Labs in the 30s, and ever since then we've been making these things bigger and bigger. Here is the world's largest telescope, non-movable, down here, 1,000 feet across. It's really a valley covered with chicken wire. They went to Puerto Rico, found a valley, and put a dish-shaped receiver, a great big radio antenna, in the ground. And this is the focal point. People have to walk out here in this catwalk and operate this thing. And what for? I will show you what for. I have here, and this, if you get the lights now, please. This is never going to make the hit parade. And remember, the taxpayer helped to put that thing up, too. So what are we getting for our money? The sound you're going to hear was not made in a studio. It was made with an instrument like the one you just saw on the screen. You tell me what it is. It came from out of the sky. It sounds like this. Pulsar. That is a pulsar. Now what is a pulsar? Well, it's a name we gave to this noise. <laughs> The first time astronomers heard this thing, and that was made with a, about a 200-foot-wide uh, radio telescope in West Virginia, we thought it was a signal from outer space. We thought somebody was trying to talk to us. But after listening to this for hours, he wasn't getting anywhere. <laughs> Maybe he's stuttering, or he's just trying to get our attention. But now the really amazing thing is, let me play a little more of this, and then they're going to slow it down. And then listen to it. How fast is that going? Well, about 30 times a second. That's correct. There's syncopation in this thing. And we're going to hear it now when they slow it down. 
the clock or at half the speed at which it should be played. Notice it helps to have a horn accent if you're an astronomer. <laughs> it's going to play at half speed. And uh, we insert here a section of that. Notice the rhythms in these pulses. recorded a few years ago, and we have not made a great deal of progress figuring out what it is. The best explanation is that what you were just listening to was a dying star. Now, why should it be a dying star? Because when a star uses up its energy, we think, it begins to turn. And since stars, like the sun, are magnetic and has magnetic poles, when something magnetic turns, it sends out a radio signal. And what you're hearing is the poles of the star that is dying. The only difficulty is, if this star is as big as the sun, then in order to make 30 of these pulses a second, the outside of the star would have to be moving faster than the speed of light. Now Einstein is in trouble. Either that, or we've got the wrong explanation. Well, there are several ways to get around that. Shrink the star down, smaller and smaller and smaller. Pretty soon you get the star so small that its gravity is so big that even light can't leave it. Now it's called a black hole. You can't see a black hole, you know. We have, there are no pictures of black holes. No, there are no pictures of black holes. There are only artists' conceptions of what they would like to sell as a black hole. A black hole is black. We can only deduce it from some noise like this. Well, one lecture I heard at Cellophane last week said that's not true. It's not that small and turning and making those signals. There are other explanations. One is that the star has more than one pole. Why should we just have one set of north and south poles? They may have 30 sets. Not only has to turn once a second, not 30 times. We can't see the thing anyway, so we might as well give it as many poles as we want. Right? Now, what does that have to do with our picture of the universe? Well, here's where I'm going to leave you hanging. What we've seen through telescopes is only a small fraction of what there really is. Because the radio signals we get from space come from many places where we don't see anything. So there is much more in space than we thought up to now. Now we have to tune in on every wavelength. Just like your radio for a different station, now we have to see what does the radio, what does the universe look like on a hundred megacycles? What does it look like in red light? What does it look like in blue light? What does it look like in no light? What kind of a radio universe is it? To say nothing of how big it is and how far it's going. What we're going to start tomorrow is with the analysis of the radio signals that are coming in from space 
to give us a clue of whether the universe really has an end or not. The biggest argument in astronomy right now is, does the universe end? And if it's exploding like we think it is, and I'll explain that tomorrow, why we think it's exploding, will it explode forever, or will it stop and come back? Is it a finite universe, or is it an infinite universe? Or is it a static universe? And you say, who cares? <laughs> well, as I mentioned before, astronomy is a hobby that has absolutely no practical benefit, except that for once, you can engage in a hobby in which you address the oldest and most profound questions that have ever been raised without being accused of trying to make a fast buck at it. No one ever accuses an amateur astronomer of trying to get rich with a new theory because they're all wild-eyed schemes and yet they are as basic and to the inquisitive mind with which we were all born as important as figuring out how long a year is. Thank you very much. Well, we have a little time left. I don't want to go, uh, well, there's a saying about that, that the mind cannot absorb more than the seat can endure. <laughs> That's a basic law of uh, Kepler. That's Kepler's fourth law that he never got to. Anyway. Yes, sir. Uh, read about them planning to put a space telescope. Yes. Okay, I'm very happy to talk about the space telescope because the optics are being made at my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin. Uh, the space telescope, which will be launched in 1985 is 92 inches in diameter, is made out of silica instead of glass because that has almost a zero coefficient of expansion. One part of the problem in telescopes is when it gets cold at night and warm, the 200 inch has to be left the dome open for hours ahead of time so that the temperature equalizes. With the space telescope, 92 inches of silica, that's virtually no problem at all. It has been figured, that means the shape of it has been completed to an accuracy of a millionth of an inch, which is the best instrument ever made by a human being. It is so accurate, I read the other day, that if you would make the telescope as large as the United States, there would be no imperfection on it bigger than two inches high. It is believed that when it is launched in 1985 and it is fully funded, uh, which means that the astronomy lobby is pretty good in Washington because the funding has not been cut for the space telescope. We have too much invested in it now, and besides that, we're not the only country paying for it. Uh, other countries are paying a good share of it, but for once, the United States has the policy that every country uses the thing only for the percent of the time that they paid for it. So the United States is paying for 85% of the thing, and we're going to use it 85% of the time. The other countries can use it for 15% of the time. It's going to be put up by the space shuttle and is expected to last for about five years, at which time the shuttle will go up and bring it home, and it'll fix it and put it back. So it's not like the telescopes that have been orbited so far that are floating up there and are in perfectly good condition, but we can't use them because the instrumentation has died or has been shut off. 
It is believed that because the space telescope is above the Earth's atmosphere, it will extend the distance to which we can look by a factor of five. Present telescopes are looking into space for approximately 15 billion light years. That means that it takes the light 15 billion years to get here. So who wants to know any more than that? <laughs> well, the question is, is there anything beyond that? Well, we are spending $685 million to find out. By comparison, the 200-inch telescope you saw up here cost $6 million. It was all paid for by Rockefeller. The $685 million is being paid by all of us. Now, if it goes off five times as far, 100 or almost billion light years, and it's all dark, is that worth the money? <laughs> At least we'll know, right? We'll know. I have a theory that God is not going to let us waste our money. If there's nothing out there now, he's going to put it there before 1985. And that's a theory you can't disprove. Yes, sir. Did I answer the question at all? What do you want to know about the... Is that going to extend the range of observation beyond what we can get radio? Yes. Yes. You see... When I say the range of the radio telescope, it is very difficult to to take the signals from a radio telescope and put a distance on them. The resolving power of a radio telescope is very poor. So if you cannot identify a radio source with an optical source, there's virtually no way of telling how far away the radio source is, unless you can detect, as in the case of quasars and so on, some kind of shift a red shift, or what you think is a red shift, then the distances are very difficult to ascertain. So when I say yes, with the certainty that we now have with radio telescopes, it's not very good at all. Until we get done with using the large array, we're taking radio telescopes and hooking them in tandem so that we get, in effect, a telescope as big as the Earth, from Australia to the United States, as one instrument with computers. Then we can get resolving power that may help us get to the distances a little better. But yes, the space telescope will optically go beyond what radio telescopes are going now. But not only that, the window of the optics reaching the Earth now is very narrow because of absorption of ultraviolet in our atmosphere. You get above the Earth's atmosphere and they can use the space telescope in a very wide band, maybe 10 times as wide as what we're getting here. So that's virtually in the radio region already, when you get into the far infrared. Yes, sir? Yes. Well, uh, did you catch what I said, that we're assuming that they're all at the same distance? If, suppose, we put all those stars at the same distance, the graph I showed you was corrected for distance. It is true that a red star that is closer will look brighter than a, a blue star that is farther away. But if we correct the distances to the same distance and put them all in the same graph, then it's true that a bright red star is bigger. Now, how those distances are determined, I haven't gone into yet because it's a rather long story. And it takes a little bit of faith and a little bit of fact. To tell how far a star is away is not the easiest thing in the world. And some of it is not very certain. But for the nearby stars, we have some pretty good yardsticks. 
We, there are several ways of telling the distance, but the farthest out distances are largely guesswork. We don't really have much confidence in the distances to very distant objects. But for the nearby ones, like the ones on that chart, we do. So for stars for which we can tell the distance accurately, if that's corrected for and put on this chart, then a bright red star must be bigger. That is a very good question. Yes, ma'am. The information from the space telescope will come back by radio. And it will come back as pulses, which will then be computerized, like the pictures from Saturn in the rings. That was not a photograph that came back. It was a series of pulses. It was a binary system. And then it is computer enhanced. And if you have faith that the computer is doing it right, then you know what we're looking at. Yes, then you can, just like your television screen, the picture is sent to your television set in a series of radio pulses. And then these are translated into pictures. Yes, sir. I I never thought of that. I don't really know. Why did Kepler put the sun in the middle? He didn't really know the distance to the sun. I guess if he would have tried the other planets and plotted the orbits around them, it just wouldn't have come out without extra circles. In fact, I, I must ask that question of uh, Dr. Owen Gingrich at Cambridge because he is the world authority on Kepler and he's always coming up with something new, like the silver nose and bra and all that kind of thing. He might know. There is no question that in the years that it took Kepler to come up with this, he must have tried all kinds of things. Mind you, he was just looking at a series of numbers on a sheet of paper. In fact, his eyesight was very poor. Kepler's eyesight was not good enough to see the stars and planets that he was explaining. But Brahe had good eyesight, but he couldn't think it through. In fact, Brahe made up his own system that nobody believed. It's called the, uh, the Tycho theory or something, and he tried a little of both. Copernican, nobody believes that one at all. Yes, sir. until he knows everything about nothing. <laughs> and that's exactly what a PhD is. You see, a PhD has to do a research project that has never been done before, at the end of which he will have more questions than when he began. And once a person loses the ability to do that, he's no longer a scientist. If you think you've come up with answers, that it's a sure thing you haven't, because every investigation leads to more uncertainties. It's not the answers that count in science, it's the search. Science does not teach us very much about the universe, it teaches us more and more about us. Why we go to the moon, you see, is more important for what it does to us 
than what we learn about the moon. The moon is not really very much affected by us going up there. I mean, we made sure we didn't send any germs up there and everything. But the fact that we went tells us something about us. And the same thing is true in research. A, a PhD is obtained by a person doing a research project not in order to get answers, but in order to develop the technique of looking for answers in his future work. Very frequently, a person with a PhD will never do the work in the field that he has got his PhD in anymore, but the techniques he developed will help him. That's why if it's from a good school, that's what he learned. He learned that he doesn't know very much, but he knows how to look. Yes, sir. Yes, not this evening. I, I'll give you a little preview of what I have for tomorrow. As it says on the flyer, I want to give you an update on Comet Austin. I can tell you very briefly right now that nobody has seen it in the Northern Hemisphere. Maybe by tomorrow night. But I will tell you tomorrow how it was discovered and why we know it was a new comet and not a previous one that has come back. Um, and I can tell you where astronomers predict that it will be seen. The people who stayed up all night a week ago Saturday at Stellafane with a thousand telescopes there were all eager to be the first in the Northern Hemisphere to see it, but none of them did. But a man by the name of Austin in New Zealand got his name attached to it because he did see it. You, and tomorrow, I, as I said, I will also tell you how we tell the distance to a star and to the farthest objects in space, and what we think it means, what shape the universe has, what shape it's going to be in, in the future. And then uh, at the end, I want to talk a little bit about our upcoming expedition to Java next summer to see the total solar eclipse. Yes, sir. Uh, the question is asking, what constellation is the center of the universe? That's part of tomorrow's lecture, but I'll give you the answer tonight, because I, sometimes when you hear an answer, you're more eager to hear the stuff later than before. And I will tell you that we believe today that the universe does not have a center. Now, Einstein once said, if that makes sense to you, then it's a sure sign that you don't understand it. <laughs> I just read another uh, chapter in a new book today on that to see if I can understand it, and all I can do is repeat it. We believe today that the universe does not have a center. I'll explain to you tomorrow why we believe that. It depends on when you took a bath. <laughs> I'll tell you, in response to your first remark, you cannot stay in teaching for as many years as I have without having a sense of humor. Otherwise, you will not endure. A person, uh, well, as I have often said, nobody with any kind of wit, the front of a class, can outsmart 30 other people with half the wit. Well, are there any other, is that the question, answer you expected? The professional answer is terrible. Yeah. <laughs>
By the way, Brahe had another nose was not silver. He wore the silver one on special occasions and he had another one out of brass. Now, I'm quoting Lord Gingrich. I never met, uh, I did have a Danish student in my class one time and when I told that story, she got up and said, now I know why my mother would always tell me when I was a little child, you're having another one of those Tycho Brahe days. And she thought it was just a kind of an expression. Now she knew that it meant a fellow had bad luck all the time. One or two more questions and we'll call it quits for this evening. The, uh, the square of the period equals the cube of the distance. Yes. Yes, the distance is the average distance for the year. Uh, the, the mathematical expression for that line between the two is called the radius vector. So the, the average radius vector cubed equals the period squared, or p squared over d cubed equals k, which means a constant depending on the unit of measurement. Yes, it's not quite as simple as just taking any distance because it's constantly varying. In fact, Kepler's equation is not entirely correct without a correction for Newton's law of gravitation. This is one reason why Newton came up with his law of gravitation is to explain Kepler's law, and he found out that you have to make a correction in the equation for the mass of the two bodies, and the equation gets a little bigger after that. Rob? Right.